to Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. That's the main place where we'll be today. Might be best to follow along just in the bulletin this week as we have a number of passages uh, to read. But Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and following will be the main place where we camp out. Well, I am thrilled to be starting a new series today for the next four weeks about the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it will be a little bit on the nose. It'll be kind of obvious uh, if you've been around why we are doing that. On February 6th, as I've already mentioned, we have a service where we're becoming Ascension Church of Phoenix. That will be our new name. Uh, it will be the same church in many ways, but a new direction for us. And um, very excited for that. Been doing a lot of work towards that. And um, you, you guys were part of the, pro- the naming process, and so you saw some of that coming up. And many of you have uh, said that you love our new name, and it's a beautiful word. The word ascension is a beautiful word. Um, and, and a couple of people, though, have said to me, so what, what does that mean? You know, what, what is that about? And maybe you've been around church for a little while, and you know that the word ascension is associated with a church or with raising up or highness or something like that, and, and yet it kind of seems vague to you, and you may be wondering, what does that really mean? Why would we focus on that? And that really, that question has driven a, a deep study of the Scriptures over the last couple of months for myself, really answering that question. What is the ascension? And why is it such a, an exciting and, and um, an inviting opportunity for us to be associated with it? And the study did not disappoint. It is uh, with great excitement that I bring us um, this series because what God has shown me through this is that there's so many things in the Scriptures that we just kind of pass over. And yet when you dig down deep and you see what it is that Jesus has done for us, and the extent to which He has saved us and brought us to Himself, it's just astounding. And the ascension is a key piece of that. My intention is for us to spend a few weeks getting some handholds to grab onto. I want it to be very easy for you to describe what it is that we are about and our vision for this upcoming season and why we are named Ascension. So let's read uh, these few passages that talk about the Ascension, and we'll start our series this morning in Luke chapter 24. There's several of the other passages in the bulletin for you. Let's read these together. And he led them out as far as Bethany, that is Jesus, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Moving to John's Gospel, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, He says to Mary, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to My brothers and say to them, I am ascending to My Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Acts chapter 1. 
So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. A few chapters later in Acts 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is the Word of the Lord. So when I don't have anything else to do or when I'm choosing to not do the things that I should be doing, I sometimes wander onto a specific YouTube channel where I waste some time, as I'm sure some of you do as well. The channel's called Pitch Meetings. And uh, it's a guy who pretends to be both a screenwriter and a studio executive. And he's having a conversation with himself, pretending from one angle to be the, uh, the screenwriter, the one who's pitching new movies, and then he switches the camera over and he is the studio executive who's just about making money and is receiving these ideas, and it's a comedy channel because the movies are pitched in such a way as to make them seem like the worst movies ever. That's his intent. He's, he takes everything that's silly about a movie, everything that's funny, and, and doesn't make sense, and he pitches that like that's the whole point of the movie. And so you can see the comedic effect. A few months ago, I remember watching the pitch meeting that he, he imagined for the return of the king for the Lord of the Rings movies. And um, as they're making fun of Return of the King, as they get to the end of the pitch, he's talking about the endings and I say endings because if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, the last movie in the series, you know that there are about seven endings to that movie. And, and in the book as well, but in the book, it, you know, it's much better. That, that goes without saying. Um, but, you know, for Sauron, the, the great e enemy dies, and that seems like the ending. And then it switches scenes, and it's, it's Aragorn, the protagonist, the king, becoming king of Gondor. And then it returns to the Shire. And then it switches to Sam getting married. Samwise Gamgee. And then Frodo finishes his book and calls it Lord of the Rings. And, and, then, and then, you know, it just keeps going. It keeps fading out. And you keep thinking the ending is coming, but it doesn't ever come. And he, so he's making fun of that. But the point I want to make this morning is that the movie isn't over just because Sauron dies. That actually would be a terrible ending 
to this series. Even though that is the main point, the main tension of the whole story is this great evil that's associated with this ring. And then Sauron is destroyed and it's this epic moment. But if the story ended there, it wouldn't be a good story. It wouldn't be the return of the king. The, the name of the book isn't Sauron Dies. And, and the name of the book isn't Evil is Defeated. The name of the movie and the book, of course, is The Return of the King. See, the story isn't over just because the evil dies. The story needs the restoration. It needs the completion. Part of the thing that drives that, that plot is that Gondor, the kingdom of men, needs the return of their rightful king. And yes, there is evil to be defeated. And yes, it is important that that be defeated and that be the climax. But the movie and the story isn't over until there is a new king, until he is restored. Some people think that the story of Christianity, the story of the Bible, is about Jesus dying. And you ask a child that, any of the children in this room, my own children, you probably ask them, what, what did Jesus do for you? And almost certainly they will say, Jesus died for me. Now, is that wrong? Is that wrong for them to say that that's the main thing that Jesus did? Of course not. When we come to the story of the Scriptures, Paul himself says, look, I, I sought to know nothing amongst you except Christ and Christ crucified. Christ crucified is a central linchpin. The death of Christ means the death of evil in the world. The beginning point of the death of death. It's appropriate that we say that Jesus came to die. Others will then say, well, you know, that's not the full story. Because it's not just the fact that Jesus died. If Jesus just died, then, then the story isn't over yet. Because as Paul says elsewhere, if Jesus is dead, then we're still dead in our sins. Just the fact that He died doesn't mean that the story is over. We need something more. We need Him to come back to life. We need the resurrection from the dead. And we need to be united in His resurrection. We need His resurrection to be saved and to believe in the resurrection in order to be a Christian. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ did not rise from the dead, our faith is pointless. And so others will say, well, it's not the death so much. that It's the death and then the resurrection that is the central part of our faith. Are they wrong? Of course not. The death and the resurrection are linchpins, central points of our faith. But what happens after the resurrection? What happens in the story? The story is that Christ for 40 days was with His disciples and He appeared to many people and then He ascended into heaven. And the way that the early church interpreted that the way they preached it even we see it in acts as peter preaches the very first sermon of the church age we see not just the death of jesus 
Not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the ascension of Jesus being the, part of the central core of what Jesus did. What the biblical writers are saying multiple times throughout, if you read the New Testament, we sometimes glaze over it because we're thinking death, we're thinking resurrection, but if you read it, you see they're always mentioning His exaltation to the throne of God because the story isn't over until the King returns. Until the enemies of Christ are under His feet. Until Christ sits down at the Father. Until He intercedes for us. Until He comes again. And so, we can talk about what is the central part of our faith. And we can argue all day about what is the most important or central thing. But what it comes back to over and over again is Christ. It's all of what He did. It's all of who He was. That is what saves us. That is what brings us into a right relationship with Him. It's what redeems the world. It's Christ for everything. All of Christ for all of life. And so, one way to talk about that is to look at the most recent work of Christ, which is the ascension. He ascended. And to say that and to study that is the way to see that Christ has done it all. It is the current state of Jesus. If you think about it, that's exactly where we live. We live in the time of the ascended Christ. In in terms of the work of redemption, Christ has come. Already the incarnation. He has died. He has been raised from the dead. And He has ascended. And yet He has not come back yet. And so it's very appropriate for a church to say, well, our name and to be associated with the ascension means that we live in the ascended age of Christ. He is on the throne. He sits there. And He will come again. Peter Toon, a great scholar, says it this way, the achievements of Jesus the Messiah in His ministry and work on earth would be without universal power and permanent significance were it not for the fact that He was exalted to heaven through the resurrection and ascension in His perfected and glorified body. It's essential. Our story would be without universal power and permanent significance without Christ being exalted into heaven. So that's where we are going this week to teach that essential truth uh, over the next four weeks and to tell you a little bit more about our church. And um, I want to make it easy for you. I want to give you handholds to grab onto. And so if you, if you have only a second to describe, 15 seconds to describe what our church is about and what our name is about and these types of things, if you're in an elevator and, and you, have to, you have to get it all out in 15 seconds before you get off the elevator, you can say simply this, It's Christ for all of life. Christ for all of life. Christ, because He's sitting on the throne, because He's in heaven, because He's completed the work of redemption, Christ now lives on our behalf. He lives for us. He is ascended. It is done. Christ for all of life. If you've got five minutes rather than just an elevator pitch, and you've got maybe a napkin to write down 
what it is that we are about, I'll give you four handholds to hold on to. And these are going to be the four weeks that we study together. Christ, first of all, has done it all. That is, He has accomplished salvation. Christ has done it all. Second, Christ is over all. That is His dominion. He has authority. Not just in heaven, but on heaven and earth. Christ has done it all. Christ is over all. Christ is in it all. That is, our vocation, our calling in life is to make our lives about Christ. To integrate Him into everything. Or rather, to be integrated into His life. And then finally, Christ becomes our all. That is a vision of formation where we grow into the image of Christ who is ascended. We rise with Him. We are ascended with Him. And we are shaped by that trajectory. Christ for all of life. What does that mean? Christ has done it all. Christ is over all. Christ is in it all. And Christ becomes our all. With our time remaining this morning, I want us to look at that first one just for the next few minutes. Christ has done it all. Here's what I want us to see. The ascension demonstrates that the saving work of Christ on earth is finished. Christ has done it all. Christ has done it all. Looking at these passages here, let's look at just a couple of things this morning. First, what the ascension is, and secondly, what it does. What the ascension is and what it does. First, what the ascension is. Quick definition. The ascension is the removal of Jesus from the sphere of this earth to the sphere of heaven. Forty days after His resurrection. That's what the ascension is. It's the removal of Jesus from the sphere of earth to the sphere of heaven 40 days after His resurrection as the Scriptures teach us. Look at verse, uh, 20, uh, verse 50 of Luke 24. And He led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up His hands, He blessed them. While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus went to heaven. People stayed on earth. That is the ascension. That's what it is. He goes out of sight. Look at verse 9 of Acts chapter 1. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. That's what the ascension is. The removal of Jesus. Sometimes in Scripture it's talked about actively that He went to heaven. Sometimes it's talked about passively that heaven brought Him back in. Uh, and so both are appropriate. That's what it is. There's a couple of things going on here. This is a historical event. And it is, secondly, a saving event. It's a historical event. It's given to us as history. As we see here, Luke who wrote both Luke and the book of Acts, he is very concerned with giving us the historical account of Jesus. If you look at his books, he's writing to probably a patron named Theophilus. 
And he's writing to Theophilus and he's saying, look, I wanted to set out for you an orderly account. I wanted to tell you how things really happened when it comes to Jesus. Luke was a physician. Luke was a learned person. He was interested in history. And you can see it in his writings in Luke and Acts that he's down to the detail. He wants you to know that this is what happened. He's a careful writer. And so the ascension of Jesus into heaven is presented as something that happened in history. Something we need to believe happened. Now, when it comes to that, if we're being honest, we might have hit our first problem. If you're a skeptical person by nature, then this story of the ascension of Jesus may strike you as something that is hard to believe. Coincidentally, or maybe, I guess, providentially, It was the ascension of Jesus that first introduced doubt into my own story. Because I remember as a child, some of you heard me tell this story before, Jesus on strings. I was in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Sorry, Branson, Missouri. They're basically the same thing. Uh, If you know anything about the South. It was in Branson, Missouri. It's a very touristy, very, um, you know, it's, there's mountainous area, but, but people go there for the tourist shops and Ripley, believe it or not, museums and that kind of stuff. And part of the, part of the aesthetic of, of Branson, Missouri, is a kind of Christian drama. Uh, there are passion plays there, if you know what that term means. It means a play about the Passion Week of Christ. As we're told in Scripture, the last week of Jesus' life is very dramatic. And so they put on a play and I was about seven years old, and I went to this play, and I saw uh, this actor playing Jesus. And of course, he was, he was tried, and then he was crucified, and then uh, he, he died, and then he broke out of the grave, and it was very dramatic. And it goes all the way to the ascension. And when Jesus was being raised up, this is an outdoor arena. This is a, a play that we're watching Jesus starts to rise up in the air with his arms stretched out, blessing them, as Luke tells us. And as he does so, the, can- the, uh, the lights guy from the back who's shining the light on Jesus is already dark at night. He shines the light too high, and it, it focuses rather than on Jesus' body, it focuses above his head. And you can see that this guy is on strings. He is being lifted up on cables into the sky and there's some kind of thing that's pulley system that's pulling him up and as a seven-year-old that I can still see it I can that was one of my first memories of thinking about Christ is him on a pulley system and even though I would not have been able to articulate it then it planted seeds of doubts in my own story as I as I begin to think about things is this whole thing held up on strings? Is there, a, is there a machine behind this? If I'm going to believe this, am I going to have to believe silly things? And if that's where you are, if that's where you're wrestling, that's, that's where a lot of people are. It's an okay place to be. And I, of course, don't have time this morning to approach like how, how we view the supernatural things in the Scripture. It's a big topic. 
But I will say this this morning, that if you are skeptical, what many of us who are skeptical by nature, and I include myself in that category, realize at some point is that there is so much inexplicable mystery around us on every different level that we take for granted that when we begin to enter into the mystery, then it's better to enter in all the way. When we begin to see the complexity of the world that we live in, the complexity of the solar system that we're a part of, our distance from the sun, the complexity of the human eye. Take whatever level of analysis you want. The mystery of how life is formed and started. We live in a place that is filled with wonder and mystery. Even though they become common to us to enter back in, we begin to see that everything is something that cannot be explained. And then... To think further, well, let's not try to explain everything then because no one can explain everything. Let's turn the question around. Let's look at it from a different angle. And from a different angle, you begin to see what C.S. Lewis saw, which was it's not so much being able to explain the things, the mysteries, as having the mysteries explain your reality. It turns the question around. So C.S. Lewis's famous quote about uh, you know, I believe in Christianity not just because I believe, I believe in it like it's the sun rising. Not just because it's true and because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The sun reveals so much that I know that there must be a revelatory being in heaven. The same way, you turn the question around and you begin to see, well, if it's all mystery, then what makes the most sense? What explains things? And there is so much that the Scriptures teach us about life. And then to turn the question and to see, yes, this is life. It's found in Christ. He did come in the flesh. And if I'm going to believe that, then I'm going to believe everything else. Because it's better to enter into the entire mystery than to try to explain what we can, which cannot be explained. See, there is no point in believing first and foremost in a God who controls everything. And then to believe, well, but He didn't raise someone from the dead. Or to believe, well, He raised Jesus from the dead, but it's just silly that He went up into heaven. See, it's better to enter in and see not just what can we prove, but what is proven through the revelation. But it is a moment of faith where we say, This historical account is the historical account that I believe. That I trust in. Jesus went to heaven. It happened. What is heaven? When it says that Jesus went to heaven, what is the Bible talking about? There are three different ways heaven is used in the Scriptures throughout. The heaven is what, first of all, the people of the Bible times called the sky. The heaven is the place above earth. And so we have the heavens are just the sky. The heavens, secondly, at times, describe the bodies of the firmament, of the, the planets, the heavens representing things beyond what we understand the things that are out there, the huge planetary movements that is also called the heavens. 
But then thirdly, heaven is also the place of God's presence. And just as many times as it's talked about that, it's talked about as God's presence. And when we talk about it like that, it's important to say that we're talking about a real place. Not a state of being. Not, a, not an understanding of something, but it's a sphere. It's a place. And a number of places in Scripture teach us to think of heaven as above and as hell as underneath. And that's where some of that imagery comes from that we have in popular culture. And many people like to point out that, 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 it, that it's not fixed in a position above us and fixed in a position below us. And that is true. But that's the way the Scriptures speak about it because it helps us understand when you think about a mystery or you think about something that you don't understand, don't your eyes go up to the heavens? It always has. That's always been the place of mystery and otherworldliness. And so Jesus went into the sky, heaven, first. He was concealed by a cloud, as we're told in Acts chapter 1. And then He went to heaven, that is, to be in God's presence. Which is not a position that we fix in the heavens that we could travel to or potentially go to, but is the place, a real place where God dwells. I'm giving you the bare bones. That's what happened. It's historical. It is a real event, but it's also a salvation event. To look further at what the Scriptures talk about when it comes to the ascension, they talk, God talks about the ascension as if it is part of His plan of redemption. A thing that happened, but a thing that happened with so much significance for the redemptive plan of God after Jesus' death, after His resurrection, He ascended. And in doing so, He saved His people. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It was the exaltation of Jesus that completed the work of redemption so far. It is a saving event, the ascension. I want to teach you some theology this morning. You can handle it. It's not boring. It's not dusty. It's amazing. If you think about the study of God, that's what theology is and specifically systematic theology. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, which is just a way of saying, how do we take the Scriptures and organize them in such a way that helps us understand them? It's not perfect. It's not everything. Uh, it's better to read the Scriptures and see it as a story and to do that continually, but it's helpful sometimes to see, well, how do all the pieces fit together? How do we compartmentalize them? What can we know? And so it's like, a big filing system where, where you have lots of big ideas and then smaller ideas that fit in with the, within those ideas, like a file folder system on your computer. We can think of systematic theology as having all these little compartments. And within our theology, our understanding of God, there's a, there's a drawer, you might say, called Christology. 
And Christology is the study of Christ. It's what we can know about Christ. And if you open up that drawer, you might see another series of boxes about all the things that we can, ha- can know about Christ. And there's two big boxes, we might say. His person and His work. His person, who He was, the fact that Christ was God Himself and also man, other things that we can know about Him as a person. And then there's another box called His work. The work. What did He come to do? Let's open up that box. And you look into that box and you see a number of things about what Christ did. Specifically, you see something called the states of Christ. The states of Christ. And what you find out when you open up that file is you see this. Christ existed in a state of humiliation and then exaltation. Humiliation and then exaltation. And all that means is that it's the story that we're given in the Scriptures about Christ and what He did to save His people from their sins and to redeem the world. He worked by existing in two states. The state of humiliation began with His incarnation. We just celebrated it at Christmas Christ came into the world. It was a humiliating event. As Philippians 2 tells us, He descended. He, he, he emptied Himself to come to this earth. And so he, he left a position of glory and honor and power with the Father's presence. And it was a descent. It was a humiliation. Incarnation into our world. He then suffered He suffered, not just on the cross, but before the cross. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His suffering led to the cross where He died. And then His humiliation ended at the lowest place, which is the depths of the earth. He was buried. But as Philippians 2 tells us, then He was exalted. And what did His exaltation consist of? The resurrection from the dead. He came back to life. And from that point of the grave, He moves up to heaven again, finishing the loop. He was raised from the dead. He then ascended after spending 40 days with His people. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. He sat down. And He will come again. That is the work of Christ. It's from heaven to earth to heaven to new heavens and earth. It's from heaven to earth to heaven to new heavens and earth. That is the story. It is the story of salvation. He needed to return to heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father And we need Him to do that in order to be saved. It is a saving event. It's clear from the very first sermons in the New Testament. When you look, this is Acts chapter 1 where we just read about His ascension. Well, what happens in Acts chapter 2? There's the sermon at Pentecost. The very first sermon of the Holy Spirit age where the Holy Spirit is poured out onto the people of God. And Peter preaches. And when he preaches the Gospel, he preaches the good news and people receive this story. What do they receive? He tells them that exact looping story. He says, this Jesus who came into the world was crucified. You killed Him. But this Jesus then was raised from the dead. And then he quotes Psalm 110 and he says, look, the the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
And he says David, David wrote that, but David couldn't fully realize that because David couldn't ascend to the Father. And so even in the very first sermon, he says Jesus has done what David could not. He has ascended where David could not. And it's at that point in the story in Acts 2 when he's preaching that and he finishes that Jesus is now seated at the right hand. That's when they are convicted. It's when they are cut to the heart and they say, what can we do? What can we do? And he says, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. And we have the church age. It is necessary for us to believe that Christ is exalted in order to be saved. For God's salvation to be universal. This is Peter Toon one more time. And everlasting salvation. The incarnate Son, Jesus the Messiah, returned to heaven where He could be the source of salvation everywhere to all who believe. It is from His position in heaven that Christ receives us. We need to finish up for this morning. Let me give you a few thoughts on what the ascension does as we close. Not just what the ascension is, what it does. Two things to highlight. It brings us into a new age and it gives us a new access. It brings us into a new age. Look with me at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They come together, they ask Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed of His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the new age. The Bible makes it clear in many places that when Jesus ascended, the Spirit came down. And it is the age of the Spirit the New Testament church. Jesus must descend before the Spirit descends. This teaches us that what the ascension does is it brings us into a time of Holy Spirit-driven power at the church level. You know, it's very common for us to say that I wish I was alive during the Bible times. Maybe even preachers have told you that before. Just imagine. Imagine you were a fly on the wall. Imagine you were there. Think about that. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it have been wonderful to be in this story? That's an understandable sentiment. But the Bible teaches something different. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away so that the Spirit can come. It is going to be better for you that the Spirit comes. Why? He says in John 16, because the Spirit is going to bring conviction. The Spirit's going to bring a guidance into all truth. And the Spirit here comes in power. And it goes to the ends of the earth. That's what Acts 2 is about. The sermon at Pentecost, it spreads out. This message of the Gospel that Peter preaches, it doesn't stay in Jerusalem. It goes to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to Phoenix, Arizona. See, we couldn't all fit around the, the mount for the Sermon of the Mount. You know, Jesus was in a particular place, a little slice of Palestine. And yet, what Jesus brought as 
so important to the world, but then he says the Spirit is going to take that to the ends of the earth. And so we are in the age of the Spirit. And so the fact that Jesus Himself is not with us physically this morning or that we are not physically with Him in His time is not some kind of mistake or embarrassment. It's the plan of God. It's the age of His power spreading to the ends of the earth. We don't have Christ next to us. We have Christ exalted and seated on the throne. And it's much better for us that He has done so. We have a new age. And we have a new access. I love what Jesus says to Mary when He says in John 20, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to My brothers and say to them, I am ascending to My Father and Your Father, to My God and your God. Don't cling to me yet. I haven't ascended. But when I have ascended, implying here, you can cling to me and you will have access to the Father. You will have what I have. My Father, your Father. My God will be your God. That's why the ascension is so important. It brings us access to God. Jesus Christ as the great high priest. That's what a priest did. The priest provided access to God. The priest interceded for God's people. There was a place in between God and His people that the priest occupied. And there was a place called the Holy of Holies where the priests would come in and be in God's presence on behalf of God's people. Every year, we come in Make sacrifices, make intercession for God's people. But if you read the book of Hebrews, you will see that that system, as valid as it was and as beneficial as it was to God's people, it was never enough. It couldn't be enough. Why? Hebrews tells us in the first place, that priest, whoever he was, had to make intercession for himself first. He had to sacrifice for himself before he could come into the presence of God. Secondly, it was deficient because he needed to do it every year. Some of those sacrifices he needed to do daily. But every year at least, he had to come into the presence of God. And so, the author of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is the better priest because He didn't have to offer intercession for Himself. He was the spotless Lamb, both the priest and the sacrifice. And because He was perfect in every way. And Jesus did not have to come in every year and does not have to daily sacrifice to God. He is Himself the once-for-all sacrifice, making Him the priest forever. For the priest in the Old Covenant, coming into the presence of God was a thing of fear. It was many ways that He could die and so he cleansed himself and he hoped and he came in and he did the work of, of interceding and he got out of there as fast as he possibly could because he was in fear. But Jesus, when he completes his work and enters into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, not only does he not leave, but he sits down. Something that is not permitted allowed or encouraged for the priest to ever do, to sit in the presence of God. 
Jesus sits down at the right hand and then He intercedes for us. Not on His knees, not pleading before the Father to say, please, 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 for my sake, do this. No, from a seated position, Jesus tells the Father, you must receive this one. I died for Him. Receive her, Father. She's mine. Receive this one. They're united to Me. And He continually intercedes for us and gives us the new access to the Father that we could not have accomplished on our own. And so what remains for us to do is to receive what Christ has done. What the ascension is and what it does is something that teaches us that Christ has done it all. It's not that we have to find our way back to Him. He has cleared the way for us. He has put us into a new and privileged age. He has accomplished salvation so that we can have a standing, even a bold standing before the Father. And so, we open up our hearts and our minds and our lives to Him and we position ourselves to receive what He has done. Even as we come to the table this morning to receive, to eat, and drink of Him who has done this, we do so not with our own efforts, but only trusting in the ascended Christ because He has done it all. Let's pray. Father, where do we begin to think about or address the majesty of what Christ has done for us? The fullness, all of Your work on our behalf. We just want to honor You and praise You this morning with our lips, with our eating and our drinking, with our lives. We would be living sacrifices, not because we have to sacrifice ourselves, but because You've shown us the way of sacrifice and You have done it all. We thank You that You are sitting on the throne. We thank You that the Holy Spirit is here in power. And we thank You for all that You have done to bring us to Yourself. It's in the name of the Ascended Christ we pray. Amen.